You're listening to Earshot from WXXI News. I'm Veronica Volk. This week, an after-school program in Rochester helps kids process the gun violence in their neighborhood and hopefully prevent it in the future. It really feels like a family here. Like, it feels like this is my home and I can always come here. Plus, New Yorkers who were once criminalized for selling and possessing marijuana may be among the first to benefit from the state's emerging recreational market. We want to live free. We want to be able to uh, have our own businesses, be our own bosses, take care of our families. All that coming up on your local news podcast, Earshot. Support for Earshot from WXXI News is provided by Rock Vox Recording and Production, presenting Legacy Cast, audio and video recordings of loved ones telling their stories for posterity, produced in a full service studio located in Bushnell's Basin. More at ROCVOX.com. The rate of gun violence in Rochester is on track to break last year's record high, and among the many victims are city students kids. My colleague Noelle Evans looked into this, and she found an after-school program in a neighborhood with one of the highest rates of violence in the city. And there, she found kids and their mentors working to break the cycle of violence. She has this story. It's about four o'clock on a Monday. A group of elementary students and their chaperones walk along a sidewalk in the Lyle Otis neighborhood in Rochester. They're headed to an after-school program. The mood is cheerful. Some of the kids are leaping or skipping. But their path takes them past about 10 spots where murders and aggravated assaults have happened in the last decade. They cross Otis Street, where six years ago, a man was shot and killed one morning as children were arriving to school. And this past March, just a few blocks to the west, a high school student was fatally shot after he stepped off a school bus. It takes barely 10 minutes to walk from School 54 to Cameron Community Ministries' after-school program. So, first we eat snacks, then we go like do some reading or do some homework, and then when we do, we go outside or do some activities. Blessin Mays is a third grader. She says she's shy, but as soon as she spots a camera, there's really no evidence of that. I love to see myself on TV, so... Yeah. How often do you get to see yourself on TV? Like, this is my first time. What about radio? Never. Blessin is one of more than a dozen children attending the youth program here today. Most of them live in this neighborhood, which is an area that accounts for about 25% of the city's crime rate, according to the Rochester Police Department. That exposure to violence and crime adds up. While there has been some research into the impact of societal violence on children, there's not a standardized way to measure it, which is odd because in recent years, gunshot wounds have become the leading cause of death for children and teens, according to the New England Journal of Medicine. Today, inside the youth zone, the students' first activity is a taste test of leafy vegetables with a 4-H volunteer. Some students say they've never tasted a salad before. It's like lettuce. It's related. Standing farther back is Luis Mateo, the youth program director. While today's mood is pretty lighthearted, he says sometimes he's had to help students through difficult moments. 
I think it was a month ago, I had two kids that were just like stunned because a friend of theirs was shot. He says that boy was about 12 or 13. He survived. Mateo says the boy was already swept up in a lifestyle of glorifying violence, posting images on social media with weapons around him. It's been a lot of violence, and unfortunately they're normalized to it, and it's just another day in the neighborhood for them. According to the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, since about 2017 or earlier, there have been increasing trends of elementary school-age children being recruited into gangs. The organization identifies several vulnerability factors that could lead a child to join a gang. Things like too little adult supervision, unstructured free time outside of school, a lack of positive role models, and a sense of hopelessness about the future. All things that Mateo is prepared to provide here. Initially, when I started my psychology degree, I had the mindset of, I need to help these kids with these problems. But then it shifted my mindset to just empower them, uplift and give them the tools so they can handle things on their own. Outside on the playground, violence prevention is top of mind today for first grader Philip McKnight. Unprompted, he walks up to the microphone with a purpose. If you don't know the violence, I'm teaching you right now. And when you become six years old like me, I don't want the dark future that happened to me when I grew up. And I'm afraid I have to go because I got a game. Philip runs off to join his friend. Other children run about on the wood chips and blacktop, swing on swings, climb on the play structure, shoot hoops, and follow their imaginations. But other days, the playground is silent. Times when it doesn't feel safe to play outside. Kayla Toppin has been with the youth program since she was in third grade. Now, 19, she's still here as an assistant. Last spring, she and her younger sister were stocking the community food pantry outside when she heard popping noises. Barely 300 feet away, a man had been fatally shot. It's honestly kind of a blur to me just because so much, just so much going on. And I guess that just put it in perspective for me. You know, even after all the years of this stuff happening, I've never had something like that happen right in front of me before. For about a week or so, playtime was spent indoors. Most recently, after the Buffalo shooting, the kids were kept inside again, out of an abundance of caution. In both cases, Toppin says there were open conversations about what happened between the adults and the kids. It really feels like a family here. Like, it feels like this is my home and I can always come here. And they have helped me so many times throughout the years, I mean, just with their programs. Toppin says that support has been life-changing, and she wants to keep paying it forward. I just feel like we can teach them here, you know? But she says she still doesn't feel safe. Not when there's street violence and mass shootings and racist hate crimes going on. You know, I'd feel safer. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that's a weird answer. But literally, if less, if less violent crimes happen, I would, I would feel safer. Given the current trends around the nation, that change might not come soon enough but Toppin hopes it will happen in her lifetime. Noelle Evans is the education reporter for WXXI News. Hi, this is Megan Mack from WXXI. And if you're enjoying Earshot, subscribe to our other podcast, Connections with Evan Dawson. 
Catch up on discussions about current events, arts, politics, and interesting people. Subscribe to Connections with Evan Dawson wherever you find your podcasts. Finally, New York is getting ready to open its recreational cannabis market. And there's a big push to ensure social and economic equity for people who were disproportionately affected by the war on drugs. My colleague Beth Adams found a few folks who are trying to forge a path forward as this industry develops, despite a few holdups. She has this story. It's a warm day, and a few friends are gathered around a table in Grant Scribe to God Atkins' backyard. And it's also my rap name, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> he's a public school teacher and a reggae and hip-hop performance artist. He says he's also been immersed in the cannabis culture in Rochester for decades. Really, uh, being someone who was born in the late 70s, growing up, it was always all around you. It was referred to as reefer then. Starting at the age of 13, he got experience in every step of the cannabis supply chain, from cultivation to marketing. Of course, it was illegal then. Atkins says he pulled back from the business around 20 years ago after an arrest for marijuana possession. He became a father about a year later. I've had all this potential, but I couldn't activate it because of not willing to sacrifice the safety of my family and providing for them. But that potential could be realized now. Atkins is the kind of legacy cannabis operator state leaders have in mind for New York's initial licenses for the legal market. The first hundred or more retail licenses will be offered to people who either had a past marijuana-related offense or have a family member who did. You cannot be a, uh, a black man in America and not be affected by those wars and drugs. That's Jeffrey Medford, another aspiring cannabis owner. We want to live free. We want to be able to uh, have our own businesses, be our own bosses, and take care of our families, mm-hmm. you know, just like everyone else. State leaders say they will expunge the criminal records of those arrested for low-level drug offenses, but not everyone is convinced those promises are real. Jesse Watson says he knows some people who are still afraid to apply for cannabis licenses. A lot of people are just kind of afraid to put themselves out there because of possible repercussions. And not only that, some people have been in the shadows for a while and some people don't want to expose their hand like that. Atkins, Medford, and Watson are all members of the New York Green Coalition. That's a statewide group of cannabis cultivators, processors, geneticists, distributors, and advocates looking for access to the legal market. We're just like a little local farmers union that's trying to just create a space and to try to affect the legislation that's giving us something here. In addition to some people's concerns about their criminal histories, They see another barrier posing a problem for everyone, the IRS. Tax Code 280E says cannabis operators can't deduct many business expenses from their federal taxes because the federal government still considers cannabis a Schedule I controlled substance. The law affects all segments of the cannabis industry, but it hits retail outlets the hardest, with some accountants estimating a 60 percent tax rate on a retailer's profits. This is not designed for us to win. If I take 60 cents out of every dollar, you can't afford anything, let alone rent. Between the high tax rate and startup costs, Watson says it's just too expensive for small business owners to find success in the retail space. 
Large companies with investors and capital have the potential to turn a profit, but smaller entrepreneurs could lose money in their first couple of years. That's not creating generational wealth. It's creating generational wealth for the wealthy, but for us, it's not creating even wealth. It's just creating another job. I hope that that's not the case. That's State Senator Jeremy Cooney. He hopes a bill he co-sponsored that was signed into law will help. It allows cannabis business owners to claim on their state taxes the same expenses they are not allowed to deduct from their federal tax bill, such as rent, utilities, and payroll. California put a similar law in place after large corporations were dominating that state's marketplace and pushing out smaller entrepreneurs. We don't want that to happen here in New York. We want to learn from some of the missteps that took place in California. The New York State Legislature recently took another step to pave the way for license applicants. They established a $200 million fund to defray some initial business costs. A whole suite of benefits, including retail furniture and fixtures, um, help with finding and renting and leasing space, These are all items that social equity candidates will have access to at no charge to them. It's too soon to tell if these efforts will make a meaningful difference to the people state leaders hope will benefit from the cannabis market. In fact, if New York succeeds in its goal of granting minority populations and others affected by past drug laws 50 percent of licenses, it will be remarkable. According to one study, none of the 15 other states with social equity programs has been able to create an equitable cannabis industry. The Minority Cannabis Business Association points to limited licensing as one factor, keeping minority participation low. In New York, state officials say market demand will determine how many licenses are issued. Despite the potential pitfalls and roadblocks, Grant Atkins has hope. Since New York legalized cannabis last year, He says he feels like he's living a new life already just because he's no longer seen as a criminal. All my life I was one thing and then one day by the stroke of a pen now I'm in the instantly emerging multi-billion dollar marketplace with the potential to to do all of these wonderful things and it's, it's just surreal. Beth Adams is the host of Morning Edition on WXXI. And that's it for Earshot. Subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes in your feed every Friday. And if you like the show, leave us a review and spread the word on social media. Find even more local news on our website, wxxinews.org. Music this week from Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. I'm Veronica Volk. Thanks for listening. This program is a production of member-supported WXXI Public Broadcasting, Rochester, New York.